You're listening to Brave New Words. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. I'm Del. I'm producer Al. Brave New Words is presented to you in association with Stomus magazine, uh, who also have a column called Brave New Words, um, which is written by me. And you can also find us on the Wonky Spanner. Never has a spanner been more wonky. And we are produced by Truly Outrageous Productions. Roll that out of the way, and to waste your time even further, we're going to have a jingle. This is Fabrizio International. That was lovely. What a lovely jingle. So on today's show, uh, given that I've woken up and I've remembered how to present a radio show, we're going to be doing The Lost Plot. (laughs) Yeah, we are! Yeah, we are! It was funny, though, because you couldn't find it then. (laughs) (laughs) It was was stuck in the sofa. (laughs) (laughs) The plot, which is indeed, which was lost, has been found. So read the sheer volume of fun that appears on every page. Fully entertaining, according to Starburst magazine. I wouldn't believe a word whoever wrote that says. Um, so, we, we've talked about Genevieve Cogman's uh, library series before, mostly on a pre- show in the previous incarnation. Mm-hmm. Look at me, I'm getting straight into the book review. Uh, I think we well, did, we've, we've definitely done the third one while we've been Brave New Words. Yeah, the burning page. Yeah. No, the Mass City, the Burning Page. Yeah, it's the the Invisible Library, the Mass City, the Burning Page, and the Lost Book. Oh, Plot. cool. So the last three books um, were uh, the Mass City, the Burning Page, and the Invisible Library uh, were introduced the world to us and the characters. We've got Irene, who's a librarian. Irene. We've got her uh, assistant slash interest assistant mostly assistant um kai who um who who, at this point can we explain more about kai no kai has complicated family issues yeah kai has complicated family issues i think it's a good way to go i actually did a workshop this week and there was a guy who when i looked at him he is exactly what i picture when i think of kai it's so weird like at first kai was a little bit like my friend charlie and then he stopped being like my friend Charlie. And then, like, literally, yeah. And I was just like, you're Kai. That's weird. And then I just literally kind of didn't really pay much attention to the workshop anymore. Because I was like, I wonder. I would be distracted by it. Because Kai is described as very pretty. He was, And we were quite near a library. But it's a university library. I can't envisage what they'd be up to that would be particularly special. So, to, so to explain the world of the... Genevieve Cogman's um, Invisible Library series. Um, and we've talked about this before, but just in case you haven't like, listened to all of our previous shows. Yeah. Um, there is a multiverse. And at one end of the multiverse, there is absolute chaos. Like, you know, not, not beyond planets made of jam, beyond, you know, a world where every, everything is disco. Uh, including the particle physics beyond all of that it's like utter utter chaos so much chaos that essentially nothing nothing can happen because it's all crazy the laws of physics are constantly redefining themselves nothing makes sense nothing can evolve or move and then as you scale that down you get uh, magic and you get life and you get magic and you get weirdness and you also get fairies and the fairy beings live on chaos and they live on drama and story. Yeah, it's all a narrative, isn't it? Your whole life is about creating your life's narrative. And, and it's all like the more chaotic your life is and the more interesting things are and the more drama that happens. And you find yourself, if you live in one of these worlds, it's infested by fairies and the fairies feed off the stories and they want to make the world more and more dramatic so you find yourself if you happen to be a, a, a detective living in Victorian London who's very precise you'll find yourselves eventually falling off a waterfall somewhere against your arch enemy because that's a good story mm. and you will do things that aren't necessarily sensible but make for a great narrative you so, suddenly become more and more of an archetype 
So not you're not just a good policeman. You are, in fact, you know, Simon Pegg's character from <laughs> from Hot Fuzz. You know, you, you kind of you know you will become that kind of Judge Dredd style. Um, so the, the that's the, that's the danger of that world. And then as we phase further along the scale, we get order. And at the very fore end of our order, nothing again can grow because everything is set. All the rules are set. Everything is set. Everything is in its place. It's all ordered perfectly, like you know, like some divine force has just decided that everything has to be selected. Um, and as we scale that down, you get dragons. Dragons. And dragons have a vast, the, the vast world, and they describe themselves as you know, Lord of the Great Ocean. And they're talking about not a sea, but the river of reality. And they've ordered things nicely, in a nice sort of way. And it's all it's all worlds of science and science thriller, and you you don't get absorbed in the story. You just do what makes logical sense. Whatever works with the order of things. Yeah. You follow the rules. You have a very strict life, and and as you scale again towards chaos, you get cyberpunk style stories, and you get thriller stories, and you get the girl with the dragon tattoo style worlds, and you get these kind of like very intense kind of dark and. A gritty thriller sort of worlds, and where the two clash, where you have very ordered worlds that hit very chaos worlds because the worlds can shift depending on where they are. You get steampunky worlds, and you get shadow runny worlds, and you get diesel punk. So you can have a world with cybernetics and elves. You know that that yeah. that's a thing. Um, order the order based worlds. There can be kind of more of a, a tendency towards tech and technology but at the same time not necessarily which I found quite interesting whereas because the chaos worlds are so this is magic the order worlds don't necessarily mean this is tech this is sci-fi it's quite it's so, it's very beautiful so those are the worlds and you're like well okay well why is it called the invisible library series because in the middle in the middle, they are the librarians, and they live they live beyond space and time. Um, in their library, and they look at the multiverse, the library. Uh, the library, capital letters. They live in the library, and they essentially go, "Oh, there's lots of different realities. That means there's infinite endings to the Hobbit. We have to have them all." <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! It's amazing. That's literally the whole thing. So they, so their librarians are basically book thieves, and they'll go into it like they'll find out about a version of the remains of the day where it's written from a woman's perspective. Yeah. Or I, maybe like a fable that we all know, um, but there's an extra character in that one. Or the lion, the witch, the wardrobe, wardrobe, and the woodsman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or the, maybe like in that world, C.S. Lewis wrote eight Narnia stories, not seven Narnia stories. Like it's really. Mm. Oh, oh. So the librarians, their job is to tend the library and also steal books. They are book thieves, and they are derogatorily referred to as book thieves by the other factions of this of these stories. And our main character is Irene. Irene is an orphan because that makes a good story. No, she's not. Oh, well, she's not. Her parents are alive. They're librarians, which is interesting and still makes for a good story. Ah, I'm, I'm in fact confusing it with a question that she's asked. There's, are you an orphan? Because that would make a good story. Yes, yeah. Um. So, yeah, that, Irene, is, Irene is a librarian. She, she works in the library. Irene is not her real name because they all have their real names because their real name, names are power. Mm-hmm. And when you join the library properly, you get a library brand, which is really fancy to see, uh, made of language. And the language, or the language is, the language of reality. It's mm-hmm. the source code of existence. And if you know the right words, you can command anything to behave within its idiom. Right. So you can say door open. Mm. You can't say door to jam. Yeah. Well, no, you can. The door will jam, isn't it? Won't open. It won't become jam. It yeah. won't become jam. Mm. <laughs> uh, the door is a jar. What? No. 
But you have to be very careful. <gasps> a yes. door can both be a jar and jam. Yes. We've just discovered what? something. <sighs> Your mind was blown by oh. these new words. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, surely, uh, as the running gag in this show is that we've been trapped in uh, like uh, an infinite oh, library for some time. Maybe that's how we've survived. By yeah. licking the door. By licking by, the door. But yeah, eating the door when the door is jam. I have to say, because we've licked it, it must belong to us now. Yes. Yeah, that's true as well. That's, that's a rule. That works. That's, that's, that's rules, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's all the things. Don't try that in a natural library, folks. That's not the, the library is not too key when you do that. I think It's totally how marriage works as well. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I like Be actually about... married when you try that one. Sorry. <laughs> The language as well is that you um, librarians spend their long a long time learning the language, but if you go to a new world, you have to learn about what the grammatical differences in the language are there, mm. and there might be words that are applicable in that world that we don't use yeah. in other worlds. It's it's amazing. But also, it means you can't say uh, injuries heal because that's not precise enough. Mm. And it's very precise. You have to be very precise how you put it. So the limitation on so it's an amazing power. Yeah. And it physically drains you to use it. But you can the, heal from an injury, and injury can't itself heal. Well, 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 no, no. What you're saying is you're saying cells knit. You'd have to know the name of every tissue that was affected in the injury right. to get the, those to know the names of those tissues and how they would work to become healed. Okay. So so it's like. In the book, she'll say something like, door open, but that's because we're reading it in English. In mm. the language, it will be a longer thing. Right. Because she's defining the door and what the door is. So, essentially, it's a plot device. That means that that, that the powers don't always work the way they're supposed to. Mm. Yeah. Because you can get the phrasing wrong. And, like, our librarians will bicker between each other. It's like, no, no, you need to use a numlap here, sort of thing. <laughs> Um, so, so that's the world that she's created within four books. The first three books are very much about the fairies and about the fairy worlds. There is the dragons are there, mm-hmm. and there are some major dragon characters that are intertwined in the series. Yeah, mm. so the dragons play more of a part in the second one, don't they? But they're still not the story. They're, they 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 kind of sit there as kind of neutral characters, as not neutral characters, but as. Um, Interested but standoffish, mm. whereas the fairies are running around going, "We have plots and schemes," which is what they're supposed to do. Mm. Um, it sounds very organised for things like that. So yeah, such such intrigue, and they run around, and then occasionally dragons go, "I'd like you to make sure they don't do that because that will hurt this and mm. our interests." Though you are neutral, yeah, we'll look the other way because it's advantageous to us. It's sort of that sort of the, the politics. Um, the lost plot goes in the other direction, right? Ooh. So more dragons. Uh, so more dragons, <gasps> and more about dragon politics, um, specifically. So it starts as all these books have started so far with a book heist, because that's what Irene mostly does: is she steals steals mm-hmm. books, and in this one, there's a book heist, and it gets complicated. The very first book, she's. She's running through, I think it's a gothic cathedral being chased by gargoyles mm. um, with a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, in this one, she's uh, stealing a specific book because that seems to be the style. Um, <laughs> uh, and then we get on to the actual story, which is where a dragon says, I understand you're for hire. And everyone's like, no, but but not for hire. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Like, holy no. <laughs> I, but but the, I I've heard that someone else is for hire, so I assume you're all for hire. And she's like, right. So digging into it, what it is, two dragons are going for a position within the dragon court, so they've both applied for a high level administration job because mm-hmm. that's what dragons are like. Yep. They've filled in their application form, yep. they've gone through HR, they've taken their metric tests, they've done their, their formal things. Unfortunately, this is such a high position that one of them wins, yep. the other one 
gets to not exist. Right. The price of failure is death. Okay. Um, and they have to do a series of challenges to, to please this court. Mm -hmm. And if they successfully, whoever, whoever successfully sorts this out gets the job. Yep. And one of the tasks is steal a book. Um, and it's, I believe it's Monkey. Uh, it's a particular version of Monkey with the dragons really, really cool in it. Mm. Essentially. So, so uh, Irene gets told, oh, well, there's another librarian's doing it. Why aren't you? So she's like, oh, off to HR. So she goes and talks to the house of Superior and his Superior's like, this is awkward. You, right, we're going to have to send you to this world mm -hmm. to find out what's going on. Because the fairies catch wind of us working for the dragons that's our neutrality in tatters and we're dead. Mm. And there's another librarian who's working for hire at the moment. And yeah. there's another librarian that they think is mm. legitimately working for this faction on our side. Yikes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the setup. Right. Obviously there's another book heist because it's the Invisible Library series. Right. Um there is more Kai in this one because Kai is Kai's a major character from the other three, three previous books. Um, but Kai's involvement because of um, everything. El everything <laughs> in the story and everything that's been building up to this, it's time for Kai to step up. Right. He's currently an apprentice and he needs to like decide. Essentially. Right. He needs, we need to, to, he needs to move the, to the journeyman stage. There, there's some important decisions he will need to make. Okay. Uh, especially with the... Uh, so they end up going to... Nineteen twenties, prohibition, Chicago gangster world. Okay. Essentially, so it's flappers and gangsters and cool dresses, and there is there is a there is a touch of the Miss Fishers, and that, that sort of you know jazz age style thing going on, and obviously there's an Al Capone style character, um, who's all like ah, and there are some really clever distractions and bits where because this isn't a story about fairies some of the reasons why stuff have happened in the previous book is because fairies have gone I'm just going to insert you into this story and I say that you're this and then you become part of that narrative and then you can't avoid mm. then you're railroaded yeah. and that gets you out of my hair while I get on with my scheme dragons don't do that dragons just get you arrested Okay. or similar Mm. Or you know, hit you with a tax spell, so it does <laughs> it does the same mechanical thing as the previous the fairies do in the the, mm. the, the the previous three novels. Okay, so is it fun? Yes, I read this in about an hour and a half. Um, Good grief! Uh, and it's 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 jam for the brain. Uh, how how have you read that in an hour and a half? He reads quite quickly. He's reading quite quickly. How many pages is that? 300. You read too fast. Um, maybe two hours. Um, but I enjoyed it a lot. I I, I blatantly jammed it into my brain. Um, I similar, I had similar experience to Artemis in the fact that I just like started reading it and then realised I was hungry. And uh, um, okay. <laughs> like started reading it. Started reading it, started reading it, and almost finished reading it, and realised I was hungry because... Mm, you need to eat. I hadn't done anything but read. Mm. Um, okay, so criticisms are... It's part of the book of a series. Uh, at this point, Genevieve is very comfortable with the style and the approach of the novel. Okay. Do you have to be comfortable to, to enjoy this <laughs> one? Diving straight in, or should it's we start at one? Good jumping in point, but start at one anyway. Yep. Yeah, I'd always start at one. Well, yeah, mm, this is yeah, my eventual plan. Um, they are great fun, but they, this book doesn't, despite the fact that it changes it around a bit, it doesn't do anything new. Um, the stuff of the language, you sit there and you go, wow, there's a, there's like she shortcuts a bit with the language, which she does anyway. Hmm. Um, it's still not become the sonic screwdriver. Right. The one okay. or two points I'm like, oh, is it a bit sonic screwdriver? And then, then it goes wrong. And you're like, well, that's fine. Mm. If you see what I mean. Um, we meet other librarians, which is always a pleasure. Um, 
it's not I'm not being damning it's more of the same okay and that's good because mm-hmm. I really like the first one and I really like the second one and I really like the third one yeah and despite the fact that we get more of the world and it changes it up again it's more of the same and that's fine because I want more this is delicious chocolate and I want more okay so it's not the end of the series no okay did you did you anticipate it being I, I want I want I want something to be the end of it I think doing wrong, I love them and I will happily keep reading them but at the same time I'm kind of it's too stressful okay knowing that it's that it's not the end I think this might be going for a while oh uh, I can't I can't then I can't I literally can't do that to myself I can't the thing is I suspect we're probably going to get to about book four or five and then, sorry this book is book four <laughs> we're going to get to about book five or six and then we think she's going to want to do I think she's going to do three fairies I suspect she's going to do three dragons and then I think she's going to do something else I don't think she's going to do a because these are the same publishers as the Charlie Strauss books and it's kind of like it's kind of been a little bit kind of compared even though they're nothing like each other nothing like laundry series but I've seen people like go Oh, it's kind of like an ongoing series of books that you can just keep getting into. And I'm like, I don't think it's got quite that. I think she's probably going to stop the, at some point. Yeah, there's the, the, the idea has limitations. You can't just keep going and going and going, if that makes sense. There's enough change, however, to make me want to read the next one. I hope there's another one. Okay. If there isn't another one, I'll be upset. Oh, there better be another one. If that's not the end, I will... I, I will burn shit down but um okay steps away slightly <laughs> Del yes there, there's a, there is an hour radius of, of empty space around Del uh, <laughs> is, uh, is Del going to set herself on fire or something no oh, good I'm talking right. about books that you get towards the end of the year because the thing with the Invisible Library books is that they're, they're, they're sort of that book that you can I like the series I'll get them round the right winter to cheer myself up I'm going to go over here to a bookshelf. This is excellent library. Uh, excellent library? Excellent yeah, video. This is excellent library. To be fair, it's not a bad library. Excellent library. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pass this around the class. Ooh, oh, God, I've seen this already. Uh, I've seen this already. That's excellent it. radio. Open it and smell it. But, see, I was so excited, and then actually seeing it, his little face just makes me sad. Do you want to read the title, though? This is Terry Pratchett's Terry Pratchett's Discworld Imaginarium Seriously, open it and smell by it. Paul Kidby. Seriously, open it and smell it. I can't. So, um, so this is where we have uh, one of those challenges of reviewing books on, on uh, a podcast. I opened it onto a page of Gaspode! <laughs> so this page smells of dog, right? <laughs> uh, a good dog. This is a book by... Well, not, Gaspode is not a good dog. No, he's not. Sorry, yes. He has the power. I remember now. This is a book of artwork by Paul Kibbe. It is not a Terry Pratchett novel. No. Um, it is all your favourite Terry Pratchett drawings and pictures. Um, is it all the Josh Kibbe artwork? No, well? it's all Paul Kibbe. Right. Uh, it's only Paul Kibbe. It's, right. Paul, it's essentially Paul Kibbe's gallery. So you get a whole bunch of Paul Kibbe uh, covers mm-hmm. without any irritating blurb, Isbin numbers, barcodes and the like. On, in the, on them there's like a little section that shows like Tiffany aching growing up and so you may need to clarify for me because I remember Josh Kirby wrote, drew, drew most of the covers for a lot of the Discworld novels but obviously that was up to a point because Josh Kirby passed Am I thinking of the right name? I do. Isn't jo- no? Didn't Josh Kidby do the ones from where it became the very plain with an image covers onwards? I'm no, not sure. Because wasn't it someone Kirby? Yes, that sorry, that's who I'm thinking of. Sorry, that's what I'm thinking of. We're talking about Josh Kirby at the start, then. Yeah. Kirby oh yeah. So Josh Kirby is the one where it's like loads of images, loads of images, loads of images. Like everything is going on. Yeah. And then they reach a point where, the, when they did the re-release of most of them, it's essentially kind of colour wash mm. with a standout image in the middle, generally of Part, characters. That's the reason. So that's, yeah, that's Kirby. Right, because Kirby passed away a few years back yes, yes. which is so, presumably the reason why so uh, before Pratchett I think but Kibbe sure. yes very bit. much so yeah uh, Kibbe's been doing this for about 15 years so he's been doing essentially the covers for the books since Kirby 
Uh, yes. Right. Uh, he started off with the last hero. Yeah, I remember that hero. Yeah. Um, which it worked, and his art style really worked for the last hero because it's lots of kind of the last hero is a Conan the Barbarian parody. Um, so you've got all those kind of standout scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gorgeous as as a coffee table book. Um, it is a coffee table book. It's huge. It's beautiful. Del is going through all of the artwork at this point. I'm not looking at it in detail. It's the watch. But Del is having moments. I love the watch. Mm. There's some really nice bits in it where he. It's art either that didn't quite work or wasn't. or that never really got released. Right, so this is. And I think some of it, like, there's a picture here that's like Leonard's skyboat. So Leonard is like Leonard de Quirm, isn't it? Like, mm. no, Leonard de. Yeah, is Leonard de Quirm. Yeah. Of Quirm, yeah. Yeah. Leonardo da Vinci, but. Yeah. And it's like, that's that's not from a book. There aren't books that are just about Leonard, are there? Like. Or is there? And he's in, he's in Last Hero, but. He's, there's like, a, there's kind of. He's in bits, isn't he? But it's well, not like he doesn't have a story. Is the last two are the one where they build the rocket ship and they use the space dragon. So is that the other one? Is that? Uh, that's the one where Cohen, Cohen the Barbarian, is determined that because that to, to end his legend, while well, he's going to go and to kill all the gods. So, and send... so the Unseen University send uh, Carrot, Rincewind, I think probably Leonard himself. I can't remember if there's anybody else on the mission to go and basically stop them from returning fire to the gods. And they and they have a, a, a rocket ship, which isn't a rocket ship. Yes, and they have. And I, I, I can't remember the. It's not Latin. It's the faux the fo Latin. But the the phrase that rinse we had basically has sewn onto their space suits, which is we who are about to die don't want to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that's fair. Yeah, I've, I've I've used that in other contexts. And it's it's got the space dragons, and the space dragons don't fire fire from their mouths because they're adapted for space. Because they, they need to see where they're going. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, little jet engines, mm. which is an. I idea. didn't remember it being called the Skyboat, but I, I do remember that Leonard of Quirm is not very good at names. Here, <laughs> um, here is a submersible to be immersed into a marine environment. I've called it the boat. According to uh, official Discworld Twitter, 2018 is the year of the justifiably defensive lobster. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's justifiably defensive because people are trying to make it into Thermidor? Ah, or, or do we think it's? Uh, do you think it's? Now we're looking at a somebody portal. has already made a Thermidor based pun. Or do you think it's justifiably defensive because it's saying things that are slightly controversial on Twitter? Is that the Lonely Hearts Club band, but with Discord? Yeah, it's the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, but with um, the band with rocks in. <laughs> Nice. It's, it's got everyone. The librarian. It's got that undead chappy. The little death rat. De- death of rats. Are you thinking red red shoe? That's lovely. I'm not. Been a while since I read the there's there's red shoe. Soul music. There's a vampire. Werewolf. Veg, His name veg. I can't remember. Angry. And a little terry at the back. Now I'm sad. One of them's got Ziggy Stardust makeup. Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Now. The book has been passed along. While smell the book, smell the book. Ziggy knows it, smell the book. Really pretty. While Ross is looking at the Discworld novel. And has managed to open it to exactly the same page. Take advantage. Don't oh, fingers is. on it. Sorry. <laughs> so, it's an art book, it's lovely. Uh, I think it would look very nice on your shelf. I think... Especially considering, I know that th- we're very close to Christmas now, but if you have a large Waterstones near you and you have a Terry Pratchett fe- fan friend that you don't know what to get for, everyone would be happy to receive that. It is beautiful. And talking about beautiful, big, massive art books, we had another one through the door. Eww. It almost broke the, broke the door. I was about to say, uh, did that go through the door or through the door? Well, through the door. <laughs> um, Tascan do really pretty art books. That if you drop in your foot, you'll break them. Uh, your foot, not the book. Um, and typically, uh, like uh, like a thing of 
for me growing up would be, there'd be a H.R. Geiger Tuscan book and it'd be kind of like that trendy kind of heavy art book if you have a Tuscan book it's a book that says art in huge letters and it's like art this person whoever's done it has had a gallery Jimmy Hewlett who's famous for Tank Girl and for the gorillas has like been in the statue gallery and this sort of thing um, I so, don't know why I never put those together because visually they're so similar the Jamie Hewlett Tank Girl stuff and the Gorillas artwork I just never connected them to being the same person you also did Monkey Journey into the West mm. uh, which was also shown at the Beijing Olympics um, and what this is is it's a substantial catalogue of his artwork I would like to stress work. how important the word substantial is it is large it is flipping massive um this is a this is for robust coffee tables only yeah um, not um, them glass ones no god no oh <laughs> producer alice oh. you're just there for the smells aren't you yeah it smells very similar to that one actually but not quite a bit more cedar wood going on See, we're already doing better than most perfume adverts I've seen on TV. Because <laughs> we've actually described the smells. Yes. So you've, you've still got the, 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 the Pratchett. There's food. Yes, I've, I've, I mean, I've just found the picture of um, the, the watch and I've immediately recognised virtually every character in it except one. I'm wondering if it's Constable Visit. Um, but I saw Red, uh, Red Shoe in the back. Um, I found Buggy Swires, who's you know six inches tall at the front. And I hadn't thought of Cheery Longbottom as looking like that. But Sorry. Cherie Longbottom, Little Bottom? Cherie Little Bottom. Yeah. Spelt Cherie. But, but it's spelt Cherie, but yeah. Cherie. But now I've got an idea of, yeah, that's that's how she should look. See, I think this With is With the proper beard. Clever as well, sorry. I'm not, I'm, I'm looking at the Jamie Hewlett one. I think it's quite clever, and maybe more coffee table books should do it. But any text that's in it, they've got the text from all the countries they're going to publish it in, in. Yeah. So you just find the bit that's in the language you speak. So you get a couple of pages that yeah. aren't relevant to you. So and English, there's a page of German. Oh, I'm not sure. Maybe Spanish? No, French. That was French. It tends to be a feature of task and books is that they do that. Yeah, it's and clever. It, and it really doesn't... You know, like, you know, if you're being grumpy, you're like, well, there's a page wasted. It's like, you've got 500. And mostly you've paid for a massive book full of artwork. I, you, you can afford to lose a couple of pages so they can sell it elsewhere. It's a catalogue of projects. So there's a gorillas section. There's a section on some work he did in Bangladesh for Oxfam. There's a section on yeah, Monkey Journey to the West. Like this it, is this is just lovely. What what I find fascinating is that you'll be looking at some, <laughs> you'll be looking at something like, you know, Tank Girl and you'll be looking at say the Monkey Journey to the West and you'll flip through it and then you'll flip back a few pages and you'll see an enormous space penis because mm. he's decided to draw, draw a massive watercolour space penis um, for, for no particular reason but they're also what I find fascinating is that though they are essentially the same thing J the Jamie Hewlett Task and Book and the Terry Pratchett Imaginarium they're also very different not just because of the artists but because of the, the whole approach if you see what I'm saying, it's like I would buy the Jamie Hewlett book for myself because I'm a fan of Jamie Hewlett's art, and I would probably, if I was that sort of person, I mean, I'm not wanting to leave books lying around conspicuously, but <laughs> I would expect to find, in a certain sort of kind of, forty-year-old indie kid's house, as in someone who was an indie kid in the '90s, I'd expect to find that on a coffee table, yeah. or possibly in the toilet. Um, to to be flipped through, whereas I would expect to find the Terry Fratchett book on a shelf to be taken down and then shown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that is like a take like keep safe. Not that this isn't a keep safe. This is wonderful, but I also think that this sort of book, because of the type of artist Jamie Hewlett is, and I say this with great trepidation because we know how I feel about how books should look all the time. But actually, if this got bashed in certain people's houses, that would just add to the aesthetic. 
I think this could take a good bashing, and if anything, it's just going to characterise it. I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. And don't. But if it happens... Would, she, she's denying it pretty strongly. I would expect to see that book with the Jamie Hewlett one. I'd expect to see with sheets of someone else's artwork, sketches, someone who is an artist using that as source material for sketch inspiration, which to me is a good definition of task and books. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you expect to see sort of tracing paper in the back. Tra- funny you should mention the tracing paper in the back. There is a sketch section in the back way of translucent ah, oh my god it's made of tracing paper in the back okay ah, no look like I no, can no, see I'm, all I'm, I'm aware. Things, and I'm now aware. I see a look <gasps> that's beautiful it's really pretty oh but my god it's, it's like Task and Nor their market though as well and it's like here are some of the artist's sketches so if you're this is the most hipster a book could ever be it is <laughs> They've printed in, a, in a wonderful way. In a nineties indie kid way, because he's ninety he you know, Jimmy Hewlett is the, the, the artistic voice of the nineties, oh. quite British and nineties style. Uh. Ah. I and can't I it, can't This is great radio. It, <laughs> and whereas We should get that on a t shirt at this point. This is great radio. <laughs> we should have a lot of things on t shirts. We should. Uh, this is from Moving Pictures. So just looking at the Terry Pratchett one. Don't I've forgotten about. about this scene in Moving Pictures, which is the which is the giant woman stepping off the screen and climbing the unseen university mm-hmm. whilst holding uh, the librarian. <laughs> so what is it? Rather oh than, yes. Rather rather than the scene in King Kong where the giant monkey is holding Fear Ray, we've got a giant Fear Ray holding a monkey. Whilst the flying wizards are trying to take it down. Of course. Oh, there's like photos at the back of the Jamie Hewlett one as well. I'm assuming of Jamie Hewlett. He looks exactly how I'd expect him to look, actually. There's surprise photos of naked ladies in there as well, because he did some naked mm. lady pictures. He reminds me, actually, in a lot of the pictures of him at the back, he reminds me a little bit of Cass from Preacher, the way he's drawn. Like, he doesn't look haggard or harrowed or anything but just i think it's the hair and like he's got big glasses on in some of the pictures like there's definitely like a little bit of cast going on there it's definitely how i'd expect it, it he is he looks exactly how you'd expect him to look yeah there's a picture of rihanna pratchett oh no esque from from uh... <laughs> oh wait oh no 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 and there's a biography section at the back of this there's a little interview as well. Um, oh, oh, just this is wonderful. I think you could keep a lot of people very happy with either of these books. This is I, stunning. I've just turned to because with the Terry Pratchett one, you get a sketch and then you get the full full colour. Mm. Yeah, and it tells you the medium as well. So like it'll say like graphite on paper, acrylic on board. Like it's good. I'm just looking at the picture of oh Grebo, hmm. and I have to say I would, to be quite honest. I think that's the point of Grebo, though, isn't it? Oh, and even if you wouldn't, I'm not 100 percent sure how much choice. Well, I don't know. It's, it's kind of quite. Fit. Yeah, Grebo is a cat, but there is a book where he is not a cat. Ah, um, right. Okay. Oh, it's just wonderful. There's a perfect picture of Magra as well. Magra. And she looks very. Unpleased, <laughs> slightly, slightly put out. Oh, um, oh, it's just very lovely, <sighs> very lovely books. Um, and I hope we've actually kind of transmitted what they're like because it's, it's, it's not... difficult to discuss a very visual book on radio, but we try. Well, you know, technically, they're, they're the most dense things you can get because each picture tells a thousand words. Yeah. So, you so know, how many pages has this thing got? 500. So, that's 500,000 words. So, uh, that's about the same length as Alamur's J- Jerusalem. <laughs> the thing the thing with Alamur's Jer- Jerusalem is it came out last year and we're just starting to see reviews of Alamur's Jerusalem. We saw a lot of reviews of Alamur's Jerusalem at start 
and there will literally be people who've read the first hundred words, hundred pages, and gone, right, and then what about it? And we're just starting to see people who've spent their year reading this flipping book, oh, right. and sort of taking it down. Oh God! Um, I'm still not doing a Jerusalem movie. Shall we talk to George R. R. Martin? Okay. I think we should talk to George R. R. Martin. George R. R. Martin, welcome to Brave New Words. Hello, sir. Um, are you okay to shake your hand? Oh, uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> has, has Worldcon, has world fandom grown over the years? And as someone who's been a lifelong fan and lifelong involved, what's it been like to observe the, the shift and the change? Well, it, it, yeah, there have been changes. There's a lot of continuity, too, of course, uh, which is one of the things that, uh, that I like about science fiction fandom and convention fandom in particular. Um, there's... There's a sense of history here that you're, you, when you attend Worldcon, you're attending a convention that goes all the way back to 1939, and a convention that's always been about community rather than profit, like some of the other mega conventions that have sprung up around the country and the world that are, of course, much larger than Worldcon now, but they're, they're shows. And uh, they even use that word show as opposed to a convention. And you buy a ticket and we're upon you buy a membership. Some important differences. And the community of science fiction fandom um, is one that I'm, I'm proud to be a part of. That uh, when I first uh, stumbled on it in 1971, there was a sense that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd found a community that I wanted to be. A part of. If you went into, I mean, you've written a great many things, but I'm going to into some of us in five, if you don't mind. Uh, if you went back in time and knowing exactly what you know to this point now and started writing a song of ice and fire now, what would you do differently? Well, I'd write it faster. <laughs> <laughs> I'd begin it earlier and I'd uh, probably stick with it. And, you know, I started in 1991. But I was doing a lot of other things at the time, so I, I wrote on it in 91, and I sort of put it aside and for most of 92 and 93, and didn't really get back to it until 94. Um, so, you know, if I, had, if I had written on it continuously since then, uh, it would be nice to... The only regret I have about Ice and Fire is that, that it's not done yet, that I, there are still two books to write. The show has caught up and, and passed me in some ways, which... I never thought would happen, you know, so if, if I had it to do over again, I would try to finish the entire seven-book sequence before the show finished it. But that's, you know, we're not living in an alternate world, and it is what it is, and we're here now, and it's turned out pretty well for all concerned, so I'm not unhappy. Obviously, you know, they're your characters and they're your creations, but with the popularity of the show, there are so many people who've seen the show and haven't necessarily read the books and they have a sense of ownership with the, the characters themselves. How do you respond to someone who, who feels affronted by you and how do you respond to that reputation for killing characters? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's it's almost amusing that I have this uh, reputation as a bloodthirsty slaughterer of characters. I, I, I know a lot of other writers who've killed a lot more people than I have in their books. Um, but maybe, you know, I, I don't know where these reputations come from, but they, they fasten on you and they're impossible to, uh, to escape. I do believe that you have to kill some characters, uh, especially early on, to establish that you're playing for real, that uh, the, the jeopardy uh, that your characters are exposed to, the dangerous situation that they're in, could potentially be fatal. And I've come to this conviction, you know, through a lifetime of being a reader and a viewer, as well as a writer and a creator, and knowing what I what I like and I don't like when I read a book. And I want the tension to be visceral. And when I read a book where there's a hero and his best friend and his girlfriend and all that, and you know that they're going to make it all the way through... And no matter how dark it seems, nothing is going to happen to them because they have the shield of authorial invincibility around them. 
I'm I'm not generally thrilled with that type of book because it, it seems to me it's just going through the motions and the the suspense is a, is a kind of faux suspense. I, I really want to put my readers on the edge of the seat. I want them to to have a very strong emotional response to whatever is happening in the book and particularly to scenes of danger and jeopardy where lives are in peril. Uh, I want them to feel as if their own life was in peril. Has, has the, the su- success of the, the, the series and of the world that you've created changed the way that you write? I mean, when you kill a character, you're essentially assigning them to a sort of immortality now. And you know they, their popularity may well outlast everyone in this room. So is there is that you know is is in the back of your mind is there an intention to maybe not give this particular trait or this particular character the the, the honour of lasting that long? No, I can't say that. That's anything I've ever really thought about or considered this question of immortality or whatever. One thing that does change when you have a television show, of course, though, is is that you uh, become you come to know the actors who are portraying these characters, which does, I think, make it in some ways more difficult to kill kill them because you, when you're just writing a book and you kill a character who only exists as words on a page, um, hopefully, it'll be a powerful scene. It'll have a powerful effect. The audience. The readership will, will mourn for this lost character, but you're not affecting any actual human beings. Um, when you kill a character on a television show, you're you're um, firing one of your <laughs> actors. You're suddenly from being a star in one of the most popular shows on television. Suddenly they're unemployed and looking for the next job, and that's that's a tricky situation because of course you do become friendly with uh, with the actors who are portraying the characters and you hate to to hate to do that to someone you like i was fortunate in that um, you know in the case of this particular show i i already had four books written before the show was even started to film and a lot of characters were already dead and uh, you know some of the characters some of the actors on the show to this day, haven't read my books because they don't know, want to know if and when they're going to die. Um, if I kill characters, like if I kill characters now in the book that I'm presently writing, The Woods of Winter, I'm, I'm very cognizant of that might, that might cost somebody their job. Um, talking of to be fair, though, David and Dan, David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the showrunners of, uh, of Game of Thrones, have proved to be far more bloodthirsty than I am. <laughs> um, there, are, there are probably at this point there are probably about twenty characters who are dead on the show but alive in the books, and uh, yeah, a number of those characters are going to die in the books eventually, although maybe not exactly the same way that they died in the show. But there are other characters who are not going to die at all, so who have very different fates ahead of them in the books. So, do you get a feel of looking at fun conspiracy theories when it comes to the characters? Can, can you resist the urge, or do you, do you avoid um, I don't read many of the theories uh, these days. I mean, way back, way back in the 90s and the early aughts, um, when, when all this was new, I did sometimes go up on fan sites and read some pretty amazing and outlandish theories, but uh, nothing, nothing these days. So the Game of Thrones world isn't connected to the Wild Cards universe, then? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, talking of the actors, actually, you're working with um, production company on various spin-offs. I mean, I am working on the spin-offs with five different writers, and we're developing five different ideas. I don't actually like the term spin-off, by the way. To, to my mind, a spin-off is, is where you take a character from an existing show and spin him off into his own series. It's a sequel show. And it, none of these shows that we're considering, none of these ideas or arenas that are under development are, are going to spin off any characters from the current show. Every one of them is a prequel, not a sequel. And they're set at different times and places in the history of the world that I've created. So I call them successor shows. And we are developing five different ideas with five different writers. Um, it's not me who's accepting or rejecting the ideas, though. The, the, the decision rests with HBO, and I think we're, we're guaranteed to get out of this um, development process at least one successor show that will 
follow Game of Thrones on the air, and maybe we'll get more. Maybe we'll get two or three, but uh, it's really too early to tell. And that says we're still in the early stages of development. Talking of prehistory, are we done with Duncan Egg? Well, I'm not done with Duncan Egg, but it's not one of the, not going to be one of the successor shows. I did offer them Duncan Egg, and uh, HBO was not interested in that uh, that arena. But I, you know, I've written three novelettes about Duncan Egg. Uh, one of them, uh, two of them, have been comic books, very successful graphic novels, and the third one, The Mystery Night, just came out a few days ago as a comic book. Uh, it was published on August eighth. So the graphic novel of that is now available. But I want to write more stories of Duncan Egg. I want to, they're still quite young in the, in the stories, and I want to follow them through their lives and careers. Um, how many more stories that will take? I don't know, six, eight, ten? I, it's hard to predict at this point. Um, you know, my, my plan, such as I have a plan, is to, of course, to finish The Winds of Winter, and then to write one more Duncan Egg novella before I jump into A Dream of Spring, the final book. And then when I finish Dream of Spring, we'll be done with Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire series, and then I can write a few more Duncan Egg stories. You once interviewed very early on with Marvel Comics. How's Wild Cards doing? I think the frustrated comic book fanboy who never got to write for the Marvel Comics in the 70s finally got to do it his own way when I created the Wildcard series. And, uh, you know, that's my own superhero universe, mine and the 40 other writers who have helped me in developing Wildcards. And, you know, we've got 23 Wildcard books in print over the last 30 years. We have four more originals in the pipeline. We're reissuing the old ones. We have three Wildcard graphic novels coming out. And we're talking about a number of wildcard television ideas, so we may get uh, a wildcard TV show on the air, possibly two or three wildcard TV shows interlocking with each other. That would be my great hope. So uh, Marvel, you know, Marvel has its own stable of writers now who are more on top of what's happening in their universe, but I've got the wildcard universe. Um, Wildcards is responsible for a lot of talent coming through and you're responsible you're responsible for wild cards so you're responsible for that talent is there anyone new that's coming to the table that you're particularly excited about Probably not obviously all of them but well the wild card book that I'm working on right now is uh, actually going to be a lot of fun because it's a, a first volume set entirely in uh, the British Isles and, uh, you know, it, it's in some ways a, a parallel story to the very first Wildcard book, which was a, a historical value of sorts. Wildcard, the Wildcard universe spins off on September 15, 1946. Um, and in the first volume, we start with 1946 and we brought it up to 1986, which was the present when that book came out. Um, this does exactly the same thing, but in the United Kingdom instead of uh, the United States. And you see what happened in England in 1946 and uh, in subsequent uh, years as the years passed what heroes and villains and aces and jokers emerged uh, in England and Scotland and Ireland um, and to do that we have recruited some uh, you know we have some of our regular wild carters writing for it including we had one British writer who's been active Paul Cornell for a number of previous volumes, and Paul is back for this, but we've also added some new uh, uh, British writers to our mix. We have uh, uh, Mark Lawrence, who's an amazing writer, and uh, Emma Newman, and Peter Newman, and uh, Petta O'Gwillam. So um, it's it's an exciting lineup, and a whole new cast of characters that you haven't really heard of before. So do we get to meet the British Rocket Boy? <laughs> you mean Jet Boy? Sorry, Jet no, Boy. No, Jet Boy died. It was sad. <laughs> <laughs> There's no British Jet Boy. <laughs> um, talking of British and, and things British, um, many, many years ago you wrote a book about Jack the Ripper. Yeah, never finished that one. Oh, are you are you still interested in the Ripper myth and that sort of horror and that sort of tale? That's in sure. That story? Sure. I mean, when an unfinished book or story is, you know, 
um, you never really ever forget about it. It's always a, it's almost like a stillborn child. Um, you, you wish um, you could go back and bring it back to life someday, but it, it can go cold on you. I don't know, maybe someday when I finish <clears throat> Ice and Fire and the Duncan Egg stories and and I have my copious spare time, I might <laughs> take out that book and dust it off and see if I could get back into it again. But I'm a very different person than I was when I wrote just about 200 pages exist. So, and but I'm not the person I was when I wrote those pages back in 1984 or so. Going back to the Son of Ice and Fire, is there? The, it's it's very much as a reader. It seems that the horrors of war are very much part of the series and the, the thing. Over the years, has your has your Approached that changed? I don't think it's changed. I mean, it, it, I don't. Are you Chuck Tingle? Oh, um, no. <laughs> Do you know who they are? No, I don't. You said earlier that the, the sort of novel where it's the hero and his friend and the girlfriend and they're playing the organ to make it all the way through and so there's no really much suspense. On that basis, if you'd written Harry Potter, would you have killed off one of Harry or Ron or Hermione, and if so, which one when? Well, I don't think J.K. Rowling would want me writing Harry Potter, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I probably would have killed off one of them. She did kill off Dumbledore, yeah. which was you know a pretty major thing. Tolkien never did that. He he sort of made us think he killed off Gandalf, but it was a cheat. And then he brought him back with a different colored dress. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but Dumbledore really did, uh, really did die the die the death. And there were fatalities all the way through yeah. the Harry Potter books. So to be fair, Rowling did did her own fair share of killing. Why? Why is? fantasy back in such a big way why are we so upset well I think there's a hunger in human beings for imagination for color for for larger than life adventures and um, romanticism as it used to be called not the romance of romance novels but the romance of the romantic poets something like that um, and fantasy fulfills all of those requirements it's also I think interesting to look at fantasy and science fiction it's it's, you know, sister separated at birth here, the, the two sides of modern imaginative literature. I mean, when I was young, uh, starting out as a writer, and even before that, when I was just a reader, science fiction was far more popular than fantasy. Um, there were hundred science fiction books published for every fantasy book that was published. Um, Tolkien obviously had a big part to do with changing that, um, so did Judy Lynn Del Rey, who the editor of Del Rey Books, who uh, in the late 70s proved that Tolkien was not, uh, uh, as he had previously been regarded, a unique phenomenon. And, and Tolkien was kind of regarded by publishers as, okay, this, this individual did it, but it, nobody could ever do what he did because he was too unique, he was too special. Um, but when Judy Lynn and Deb Valentine editors at the time made a success of first Terry Brooks and then Stephen R. Donaldson and a gigantic success um, selling hundreds of thousands of copies making the bestseller lists for the first time um, that really created the the genre that we call today epic fantasy or high fantasy but that's only part of the answer the other interesting part is that the relative decline of science fiction that took place at the same time, and, and why did science fiction, previously more popular than fantasy, become notably less popular than fantasy? Truth or beauty? Um, beauty, every time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Weren't they lovely? Wasn't he lovely? Gosh. Uh, we still have no idea when Winter Winter is coming up. So, uh, <laughs> please. He's not. 
Well, no, no, we still don't know when it's coming out. We'd like to know. That'd be lovely. Yes, but that sounds like you you ought to know. <laughs> no, nice no. to know. No, no. It's, you know, we, we have it's no expectations. Coming. But eventually, Winter Midnight is coming, we've been told. Mm. Um, and on that note... We've been told for many other books <laughs> that it's coming. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye! Bye!